Hello, I'm David Osman. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this podcast with James Lucia of Capital Alpha Partners, which is a leading provider of strategic policy research. Our subject for this podcast is the outlook from Washington, Biden or Trump, the policy implications. The Independent Research Forum was established to promote the best independent research providers. So I'm very pleased that we're joined today by James Lucia, the Managing Director of Capital Alpha Partners, which was founded in 2007 and is based in Washington. Capital Alpha Partners closely monitors and forecasts US political developments and analyzes their impact on the economy and the financial markets. In addition to its macro coverage, Capital Alpha covers a broad spectrum of all the key sectors from consumers and financials to energy, healthcare, industrials and TMT. James, welcome. Let's begin with a brief introduction to Capital Alpha. Well, thank you for having me, David. It's wonderful to be on with you today. James, tell us a little bit more about the setup and and the experience of the various people you have in your organization. Well, David, Capital Alpha Partners goes back much further than 2007. The fact is that we are not political consultants. We have deep roots in the brokerage world. All the members of our team were formerly analysts for Prudential Securities in New York and, of course, for Prudential Beige in the UK. And so we've worked, uh, most of us, for 20 or 30 years with institutional equity analysts who aren't really interested in political color so much as the concrete results of political decisions, whether it's a law, whether it's a court ruling, whether it's the impact of tax policy. And uh, because we are not lobbyists, because we are not spin doctors, I think we have a much better sense of the nuts and bolts and how things work that way. And because we've been dealing with our colleagues in New York and London so long, I think we're better attuned than most people in Washington to what investors in London and New York want to hear. So let's start by focusing on what a Joe Biden presidency would seek to achieve over the next four years, because I think that's an area where investors have uh, less understanding than in the context of uh, if President Trump was to be re-elected. Well, first, you've got to think about Joe Biden, the candidate. Um, Biden is a career politician. He's been in Washington for 47 years, and he's really been a process guy. He is the ultimate example of what we call the old-fashioned, genial Irish Paul in America, great on relationships, great on backslapping, great on cutting deals. He's not personally known for any one achievement or any big strategic victory. Rather, he's always been part of the process for putting deals together. You think of him as a generalist in that way. And in his career in politics, he's always thought, He's always sought to be at the top of the table. He's always sought to be there making things happen, but hasn't really had a specific agenda of his own. So to understand what he'd do, you'd have to look at the agenda that is queued up, the agenda that is ready to go. A new president usually has to pick one or two things. That's all a new president gets to do in the first year. And the thing that is really queued up and ready to go right now would be a comprehensive clean energy policy. 
This is an area where there is already draft legislation by Democrats in Congress. This is an area where you've already got total, complete, and clear consensus in the Democratic Party. It is lined up and ready to go. And essentially what Biden would do is move the U.S. environmental regulatory system into alignment with what we see in the U.K. and, in fact, in the EU. There would be a statutory net zero target for carbon emissions. There would be a 100% clean energy goal. He would align U.S. environmental policies with the Paris Agreement and gradually begin a process of deep decarbonization that would, again, as I say, move the U.S. into a more synchronized policy with our friends in the U.K. and Europe. That's the single biggest thing, and I think that's highly likely to happen. Obviously, there's a lot of interest in the Democratic Party for health care, too. It's a big, big topic for them. It's politically very, very important. But there, number one, they don't have a consensus on what they want to do. There's no finished plan. And number two, healthcare involves many contingencies, how we're dealing with COVID, the budget, the composition of the U.S. Senate, uh, Supreme Court decisions, and many other things. So while we can forecast that Biden would spend a lot of his time in the first year on expanding uh, healthcare coverage in the U.S., building on the heritage of President Obama's Affordable Care Act, the big, big thing is going to be clean energy, clean energy infrastructure, electric vehicles, and renewable energy. And I, I think for investors, a key question would relate to the monetary and fiscal policies that we would see from a Biden administration. How, how do you see um, Biden approaching the question of fiscal policy in the context of where we stand in terms of the COVID-19 and the other issues that there are surrounding monetary policy with ultra-low interest rates currently? Well, I am afraid to report that we have lost all fear of deficits in the U.S. We've always dealt with them. We've tended to ignore them. But uh, most of Biden's supporters and advisors now believe that a critical mistake by President Obama was showing restraint in his first year. Obama started with a $1 trillion stimulus plan that seemed like it was outrageous at the time. And yet Biden's uh, advisors now argue that that was really too little, that uh, to transform the U.S. economy and, in fact, transform U.S. society while transforming the economy, you've got to disregard any piffling notion of budget deficits and rather spend what it takes. So um, as the Federal Reserve apparently, conveniently, appears to be projecting that it'll keep rates near zero for the next three years or so, you have Biden's advisors urging him to spend by the trillion. And this green infrastructure plan that I mentioned is probably going to be a three, four, five trillion dollar plan by the end of the day. And um, likewise, with uh, the COVID debt, the U.S. debt to GDP ratio this very month is now over 100 percent. We could very well have another half billion to a trillion dollars worth of COVID spending in the spring. But the argument is that as long as interest rates are near zero, there is really no damage that you're doing to the U.S. economy by piling on debt in this way. I personally don't agree with that view. I think that sooner or later, indebtedness will catch up with you. But the reality is that the next few years of the Biden administration will be about a spending, spending as much as possible to achieve key results and not worrying about the fiscal balance at all. And how would he view trade tariffs and re the relationship with China? Well, the thing about Biden is that um, he's going to be much more polite but the reality is that he is not going to unwind Trump's tariff policies. 
Biden and Biden's administration will apologize for Trump's bad behavior. They'll say, we, we're sorry we put these Section 232 steel and aluminum tariffs on your export industries. But the reality is that uh, Biden will not unwind the Trump positions immediately. Rather, he is going to wait uh, until people uh, are willing to make further accommodations to the U.S. In other words, these are now bargaining chips. What will you give me to make me stop doing all of the bad things that Donald Trump did? And this will give the U.S. Uh, some leverage, perhaps, when we go into our trade talks with Europe. It may actually interact with talks about digital service taxation and privacy in Europe. It may influence as well whether or not the U.S. joins the uh, TPP in Asia. But the bottom line is there will be no sudden change in U.S. tariff policy. And Biden's advisors, such as Jake Sullivan, have made this very clear. Biden's approach to trade actually starts at home, building a stronger U.S. economy, building a stronger U.S. workforce, and doing things to replicate in a U.S. context the advantages that China gets from its state-driven industrial policy. So a big reason for spending these trillions of dollars in the U.S. would be to use the power of government procurement to build an electric vehicle industry, to build a supply chain for electric vehicles and renewable energy, and uh, to train the workforce. Um, once we've done that, uh, Biden feels it will be in a much better position to counter China. So there will be no change at all right away in trade policy. There will be certainly a better attitude toward trade policy, but the immediate focus will be essentially entering the industrial policy arms race with China. And one other, one other area which I think would be of particular interest to stock market investors is TMT. And uh, given the performance of the technology sector, what would Biden do with regard to the gig economy? Well, the geek economy or the gig economy, those are two different things. With regard to the big tech companies, Biden's message has been all over the place. Indeed, Washington is somewhat scattershot to its approach to TMT, given um, concerns about antitrust, uh, concerns about uh, privacy, concerns about uh, the accuracy of information that is posted on news sites. All of these things have led to um, what our analyst Robert Kaminsky calls a chaos theory. Everyone's unhappy with the big tech companies, but no one is really ready to pull the trigger on some major action. Now, with regard to the gig economy, um, you know, people that uh, essentially work by the job in the internet economy, whether they're Uber drivers or whether they're, they're freelancers on Elance. Um, Biden has made it very clear that he wants to take workers currently classified as independent contractors for tax purposes and require that employers who use a lot of these contractors treat them as full-time employees with benefits and, um, you know, the other, um, the other regulatory features of a permanent employee. Um, Biden has been very big on unionization of the U.S. workforce. That's a key part of his procurement plan. If the government pays for anything, it's going to be made by union labor. So again, Biden wants to find ways that these gig industries can be unionized, which is in many ways the antithesis to the way they operate now as uh, you know, uh, essentially portals that aggregate freelancers. Now, uh, recently, uh, the prospect of a Democrat clean sweep has been reducing. Uh, and I just wonder, if President Trump is re-elected, what do you think he might do differently in a second term of office? 
The thing that President Trump would do differently is avoid the mistakes he made the first time around. In fact, a second term would really be about Trump finishing what he did not start. With regard to trade talks, for instance, China in particular would know that they've got to deal with Trump for another four years. Trump's environmental policies, which are tied up in the courts now, would have a chance to be completed. Um, the key thing about Trump's administration, though, is that he never fully staffed it up. Um, he came to the White House with a group of people that uh, were frankly not competent to work in the White House or um, were trying to define their jobs in terms of restraining Trump. The uh, reality is that he has a White House staff that is uh, much better suited to his style right now. A strict hierarchical White House staff generally does not work with Trump. Anything in Trump's immediate vicinity is going to be a Game of Thrones type environment, so there would be chaos at the top of the pinnacle. But um, a looser White House structure or most of the rest of the bureaucracy where Trump is interfering day to day will continue its business is what you would expect. I think that now we know what Trump looks like in terms of a president. It may actually be easier for him to get qualified staff in the future because at least you know people will know uh, what they're dealing with when they go in. A big problem that Trump had early on is that he simply could not recruit uh, those staff people that he needed earlier in his administration, and he didn't have the staff on hand to avoid making many missteps that he made early on. In other words, the second Trump term is a redo with the chance of getting things right. And, and James, how do you see things panning out between now and the 20th of January when the next presidential election term begins? Uh, I mean, there's a focus on the presidential debates coming up soon. Um, there's a lot of questions about postal voting. How do you see things like the swing states and the uh, potential Senate result? Well, right now we are a little less than seven weeks out from the election. We have the first presidential debate coming up in two weeks. The race has been very stable when you look at the top-level data. Joe Biden has always been ahead of Donald Trump by a margin outside the margin of errors in the polls, about a seven-point spread nationally and a three- to four-point spread in the swing states. Unless something happens soon, I think that result is going to be more or less locked in place. Trump has a steady approval rate of 42 45%, enough to get him reelected potentially, but uh, not really enough to uh, drive him to a large victory. The um, debate may be the last catalyst, the last attempt for people to change their mind. There are very few undecideds in the vote in the electorate now, though. So it's likely that we have a steady state election going through uh, to the election day after that. Uh, it does seem that Joe Biden's campaign is losing altitude a little bit. Um, the wave that President Obama enjoyed that uh, created a big congressional majority for him uh, seems not to be there for Biden. So Biden does have a risk that he'll be elected and not have the strong congressional majority that he expects, perhaps a bare majority, perhaps even not even a majority at all. The um, election will be unusual this year because uh, we are making a sudden and abrupt switch to mail-in voting. We've had mail-in voting in various places in the states since uh, 1978. At that point, it was about 5% of all ballots cast. Now it's more like 23 in the last election cycle. This time, though, because of the COVID pandemic, 
mail-in balloting will be about 50% of the total, and there will be a huge surge of mail-in balloting in many, many states that have not really used this on a wide-scale basis before. The result will be that uh, we may need at least a week to count the votes. And also, mail-in balloting is complicated because you need to take into account of whether a ballot arrives on time, does it have a valid signature, do various other protocols associated with mail-in balloting, such as a signed witness statement or a security envelope, or those all set. Um, what we've seen so far this year in the primary elections is that there have been large numbers of rejected ballots. We're expecting 160 million people to vote overall. Probably about 80 million of those votes or more will be cast by mail. So even if there is only a 1% rejection rate, we're still talking about something like a million ballots that could be disputed because they will likely arrive late or without all the elements that they're supposed to have with them. It's going to go to the court to see which ballots count. I suspect that'll be about a month. Um, we have a statutory deadline for the U.S. Electoral College to meet on December 14th, so I think that the um, the courts will do what they can to force a decision by that point. If you go back to the year 2000, in a very close presidential election, the Supreme Court forced a decision in Bush v. Gore by December 12th. Um, that's going to be about the same this year, I think. So about a week waiting for uh, results to come in, and then perhaps a month of battling uh, in the courts over um, which of the ballots that come in past the deadline or which ballots that are otherwise uh, considered uh, invalid uh, should in fact be counted. Now, it could be that Biden wins a really big victory, a big, big victory, and it's evident on election night or the next day that Biden's lead is so great that it's clear he will have won. However, it's becoming more and more likely that um, we will in fact have a close election that comes down, not simply to one or two states, but probably a handful of counties in several states, uh, a margin of a few hundred thousand votes in those places. And so the possibility of having a million or more ballots that are in legal limbo determining whether or not they're valid uh, could keep the election and the election suspense going. And frankly, I worry about not only financial markets anxiety, but what we could see in terms of uh, the demonstrations and civic unrest during that period. James, thank you for this excellent insight into the service that's provided by Capital Alpha Partners. From what you say, it is clear that what happens in Washington in the next few months will have a significant impact on the whole world and will be an important influence on the direction of global financial markets. If we had more time, it would be interesting to discuss Capital Alpha's detailed analysis of the key sectors and subsectors of the US economy and how they could be impacted by potential policy changes in the near future. The Independent Research Forum would be pleased to provide a one-month free trial to the Capital Alpha service, plus details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with James Lucia, the Managing Director of Capital Alpha Partners in Washington. Mm-hmm.